1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing and better schools. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ross Taylor, and this is the story of how we were promised jam tomorrow. It's an absolute abject failure to invest in the NHS workforce. People in the mental health services haven't had such a loud and strong voice. The biggest threat currently facing the NHS is actually no longer money. It is stock. We haven't got enough stock. We've often resorted to seeing privatisation as the boogeyman. Clearly the system was under pressure, but you can't plan a whole healthcare system on the premise that tomorrow there may be a global pandemic. It doesn't matter how many empty beds you have in a hospital. If you don't have the staff, you can't treat the patients. This is a crisis. And at the moment, hundreds, thousands of people are dying in terrible conditions who shouldn't be. These are avoidable deaths. That was palliative care specialist Rachel Clark, and this episode is about something that for many of us is the best thing about being British. It's the country's biggest employer. It's the nearest thing we have to a national religion. It is, of course, the National Health Service. I'm going to be asking people who know the NHS inside out about how it works, what it gets right, and what it's getting wrong. When I spoke to Rachel, it was a few months before the current winter crisis when it emerged that 50,000 people were waiting 12 hours in A&E and the service was on the point of complete collapse. We kind of close our eyes and ears to the worst that can happen for very understandable psychological reasons. And it's only when someone is unlucky enough to need absolutely first-class health care and instead, they find themselves waiting 16 hours for an ambulance to get to their granny who's fallen down the stairs and broken her hip and is lying in the floor in agony. That's when they realise something terrible is going wrong with our society. In the first episode of Jam Tomorrow, we looked at how we've remembered the Second World War how some of the things we think we know about the war were crafted and honed years afterwards to fit the way we wanted to see it. This time I'm looking at the biggest and most lasting thing to emerge from that era, the NHS. We expect so much from it, but can it bear the weight of those expectations with the resources we give it? Do we turn away from some of the really difficult questions about what it should be and how much it should do? How did we get to a place of crisis where people are dying waiting for ambulances and suffering in pain for years on waiting lists? We'll hear the words of the health secretary who pushed the idea through. We'll hear how the NHS treats the dying, how it struggled to tackle mental health and how it tries and sometimes fails to maintain the principle of fairness that animated the whole project from the beginning. I'll try to understand the strange combination of fear and love that it inspires and whether that could be part of the problem. The first person you probably set eyes on was an NHS midwife. There's a good chance that you'll die in an NHS hospital. In the meantime, the NHS will have been involved in some of the most emotional moments of your life. Getting the all clear, not 
getting the all clear. The first scan of a baby. No wonder the NHS is such an intimate part of our lives. Of course, when it comes to the NHS, it didn't all go wrong. In many ways, it went very right. In its 80 years of existence, the NHS has saved millions of people from premature deaths. But now we can no longer deny that the service is struggling. It's in trouble, serious trouble. The average wait in A&E is six and a half hours, and for some it's now more than 24. People are waiting longer than ever for cancer treatment. Six months ago, the former health minister, Lord Warner, said the NHS was in serious decline. Rising demand will mean the NHS is unable to provide services to all, he said, ushering in a two-tier health system that no longer provides free universal care. That goes to the heart of what people have always expected from the NHS, the promise that was made when it was founded. In 1942, there was no NHS. People usually gave birth at home and died there too. People paid to see a doctor, and hospitals were either public, private or voluntary operating like charities. But during the war, it became clear to people just how much the state was capable of doing. The Beveridge Report set out a vision for a service that would be universal and free at the point of use. When the government put out a white paper in 1944 setting out how the service could work, people were sceptical. How does the whole scheme work? Well, suppose we see how it is at present. Hospitals were built haphazard according to the varying foresight and resources of many different authorities, with extremely patchy results. Reorganising will take time, but at the end of it, the country will have the sort of hospitals and other services it needs where they are needed. The family doctor will usually work in his own surgery, as he does now. But special health centres will gradually be established as building allows. He'll be backed up, your doctor I mean, by organised hospital and specialist services for the rarely difficult cases, a lesson we learnt during the war. Sounds a bit of all right to me. In 1948, a public information film tried to explain how it would all work. Morning, George. Busy? Here, what's your opinion of this new health act? No use to me, old man. Now, wait a minute. Just suppose, only suppose, mind you, you fell off that ladder. What would happen? I should call my doctor and have a private ward at the local hospital. All right, George. If you want to pay private fees, that's your lookout. No one's forcing you to use this service. But suppose instead of a simple broken leg, you have a complicated break. And suppose you have to spend months off sick. And suppose you don't need just one doctor for a number of experts' opinions. What's the answer to that? Ruin. But they didn't really believe it would happen, even when told it would be free. As a special report from the Ministry of Information in 1944 said, Few people seem to see the service proposed as a reality, and there are many comments of the type, all very fine if it ever comes to anything. It's certain to get watered down before it gets onto the statute book. Even in 1944, people believed they deserved an NHS, but didn't see how it could be properly funded. You'll hear exactly the same things today. Two general reactions are, A, if we can afford the war, we can afford a complete health service. B, where is the money to come from? I'm proud about the National Health Service. It's a piece of real socialism. It's a piece of real Christianity too, you know. We had to wait a long time for it. 
That's former Health Secretary Anur in Bevan in 1959. What I had in mind when we organised the National Health Service in 1946 to 1958, and remember when we did it, you know, you, you younger ones, this is immediately after the end of the Second World War. When we were asked, Sir Winston Churchill then said, a bankrupt nation. But nevertheless, we did these things. And there is nowhere in any nation in the world communist or capitalist, any health service to compare with it. I refuse to accept the insurance principle. I refuse to accept the principle that the National Health Service should be paid by contributions. I refuse to accept that. I refuse to accept it because I thought it was nonsense. If you hadn't fully paid up, you couldn't have a second-class operation because your card wasn't full of stamps, could you? <laughs> Some of the achievements in those post-war years were extraordinary. We eliminated polio. I think it was in Britain we had the world's first IVF baby. We have been consistently innovative. And that is partly thanks to this mass of data and specialists. Baroness Camilla Cavendish is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and was head of the Number 10 Policy Unit during the 2010s. I do think one of the great achievements of the NHS is that it's based on need and it's free at the point of delivery. And that means nobody has to be afraid of having to pay for care. Everybody knows that they have an equal right to treatment in principle, even though you and I might agree that's getting a bit frayed. It was an amazing creation, hmm. perhaps a difficult birth had a huge impact on people's lives. Um, I mean, one of the big things that happened in the first uh, year or so of the NHS was a huge run on spectacles and dentures, <laughs> which really exposed this massive unmet need in the population. And um, for the first time, people could get access to these things. John Appleby is the chief economist at the Nuffield Trust and has studied and worked in the NHS for decades. We recorded this interview before the current winter crisis. I mean, another thing I would uh, perhaps mention is every year or every few years, the NHS gets voted money by Parliament. Uh, this is a huge lump of money. At the moment, it's about 170 billion, I think, 160 billion across the UK. And the next policy issue is how do you distribute that across the country? <laughs> and prior to the sort of mid-1970s, it was done on a sort of historical basis. So the NHS, when it came into existence, inherited lots of hospitals and a lot of them were in London, in Birmingham and so on, and they had their budgets and so the money got distributed that way. But the politicians at the time, around the mid-70s, you know, wondered, well, is this a fair distribution? And over the years, the NHS has developed, it's probably the most sophisticated and complicated system for allocating public money anywhere in the world. And it's based on need and age and how different areas of the country vary and so on. Uh, and I think that was quite a triumph to make that leap into making it and, and really fitting it with the basic principle of the NHS, that areas of greater need and people with greater need should have access to healthcare. In Britain, we like to think of ourselves as champions of fairness. But how do you work out how much a human life or a life free of disability is worth? One NHS organisation has the exceptionally difficult job of deciding who gets the most expensive drugs. Should it be a 35-year-old who might get another month to spend with her kids? Or a 90-year-old whose operation could buy her an extra year? Just over 20 years ago was the creation of an organisation called NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which was set up to tackle a problem which 
every healthcare system faces, no matter how almost no matter how it's funded or organised, which is there's only so much money in the system at any one time. How do you make decisions about what's a, what's the, a good buy or not? What's what's the drug to buy? What's the health technology to employ, and so on? And those sorts of decisions were before NICE were taken, not covertly, but there was not much transparency to why we had certain drugs in the NHS in certain places and not in others and so on. And NICE was set up to really grapple in an open way with making these really hard decisions. So as a new drug, should we buy it? Is it worth it? Does it improve people's quality of life? Stroke save enough lives, given how much money we've got at any one time. And it's been widely copied around the world. It's got its failings, but it was, in principle, a really good thing. It took the heat off politicians to an extent and turned that sort of decision-making partly into a sort of technical exercise of, is this cost-effective? What impact does that drug have on people's lives and how much does it cost? Having a centralised healthcare system, rather than different states or regions giving different advice and setting their own priorities, was also an advantage during the pandemic. The whole thing, including staff, responded very quickly. Germany, you may think, well-funded health system, lots of beds and so on, actually had quite a lot of trouble coordinating the response to the pandemic because slightly devolved nature of the healthcare system in Germany. But the NHS was very flexible. I mean, amazing staff commitment. Uh, also, use of uh, newfangled technology like the telephone. <laughs> it has taken the NHS a long time to, you know, really uh, utilise that uh, basic technology. The NHS is such a big organisation that it has massive purchasing power. And over time, there's been a big switch to generic medicines, which has saved billions of pounds. Our, our drugs budget would probably have to be double what it is now if we hadn't made that slow switch to generic medicines and so on. And those things just take time. But that's the thing which drives benefits for patients and better value for money in the end. But as Lord Warner warned, the NHS will soon become a two-tier system that no longer provides universal health care unless the government acts. I asked Camilla Cavendish whether that is going to be an existential threat to the NHS as people who can afford it go private and cease to take much interest in whether the service is working. I think it's a profoundly important question. I think we've always feared with many public services that if the middle class were able to buy their way out, there would be less support for the underlying public service. That has been a worry in the past in schools where some people have chosen to go private and it is a worry in health. I actually still don't think the numbers are large enough to really undermine faith in the NHS. I think a lot of the people who are opting to go private right now would certainly rather not. And of course, what they're doing is they're very often going private just to see the same doctor faster. I do think people have become quite cynical about the way that GPs are paid. And this is not GPs' fault, but I think people are aware, for example, that GPs have been paid to do vaccinations. They've tended to prioritise things that they get paid extra for over sort of mainstream consultations. And it's certainly true that, you know, I've talked to people who've gone private only to find themselves face-to-face -face with the same GP who'd refused to give them an appointment the week before. So I think that is quite difficult. But no, I think we're pretty far from an existential threat to the system. 
Private healthcare isn't exactly a taboo when you work in the NHS. Many staff top up their incomes by doing work in private hospitals. In Adam Kay's recent TV drama, This Is Going To Hurt, that's exactly what he did. But there was a sting in the tail when the birth he was supervising went wrong and the new mother had to be rushed into an NHS hospital. It speaks to a deep ambivalence about private healthcare among people who work for the service. Ed Selak is a TV screenwriter who has scripted episodes of Casualty in Holby City, and few things show how much the NHS means to us more than Britain's appetite for hospital dramas. Because of the time constraints and things like that, we've often resorted to seeing privatisation as the boogeyman, as this as turning something that was, you know, good and free into a, a business opportunity and there's something quite mercenary about that that turns the stomachs of lots of people. But in truth, a lot of people I've spoken to within the NHS sort of think the NHS can't survive without a certain degree of privatisation. Not in the just the absolute dystopia of what how you know the american version sometimes seems where people beg not to have ambulances called because it's too expensive but to take aspects of healthcare and say well look if you can pay for this perhaps you should free up this resource or to help us budget for the things that are essential make those available for the people that can't afford it but yes the reality that just being very pragmatic about it, Adam Kay's TV show isn't even the first time I've heard about it, is often the outcome of private healthcare is somebody has to come back to the NHS to see the experts there, to have the problem solved there, that it's not uncommon for somebody to go and pay for something and then have the emergency end of it done in, in an NHS hospital. The sheer size of the NHS means it can do some things like vaccination rollouts very fast but it can also make it less nimble. I asked Camilla Cavendish whether parts of it have struggled to change with the times, especially when it comes to preventing sickness rather than just treating it. Unfortunately, I think the NHS is still stuck in the 1948 model to a large extent. I mean, we still think of a system built around district general hospitals when really about half of the people who need treatment nowadays have long-term chronic conditions. They're not just going in to hospital either to die or to be fixed up. They are coming in and out repeatedly with diabetes, COPD, heart problems, all of that. And that means we do have to focus much more on prevention. We have to have social prescribing. And we need to join up primary and secondary care. When the NHS was established, hospital consultants were paid by activity and set up on salaries. And GPs were allowed to be self-employed. And they are paid by how many people they have on their waiting lists. And the gulf between those two groups remains a real problem. I mean, it's still not possible in all cases to see your own medical record. You can arrive at hospital unconscious and nobody can get hold of the GP record until Monday morning. And, and these things, I mean, there are very few countries in Europe which are still suffering from quite such antediluvian technology, if you like. And I also think there's a cultural problem, which is hospital consultants seem to be sometimes a little bit sneering about their peers who chose to become GPs. And that is really unfortunate, and it's part of the reason why I think we have such low morale among GPs at the best. We also, of course, in the original settlement, didn't think about social care. No European country did, and countries like Germany have grappled for longer than us, with how to look after the elderly and frail 
Right now, of course, our problems with social care are backing up into A&E. We have people who can't be discharged from hospital who are taking up beds at the front door, and that is remains a major problem. And also, I think one of the tragedies for the NHS is how variable treatment is across the country. It's not really a national service at all. If you look at the terrible tragedies in Shrewsbury and Telford or in Morecambe Bay, when, you know, we've had babies dying unnecessarily, in some cases mothers dying unnecessarily. Unfortunately, the NHS has pockets of absolute excellence and world-class best practice. And it also, I'm afraid, has pockets of disaster and despair. And we really need to fix those. One big problem we have now is that the 1948 vision of the NHS didn't think much about mental health. The word asylum sounds horrific to us now, but it was a term in common use at the end of the Second World War, and there was no serious attempt to reduce the number of people in these institutions until the 1960s. The first antipsychotic drugs weren't available until the end of the 1950s, meaning that the vast majority of mental illness was regarded as untreatable. People were simply committed to institutions with no chance of healing. The neglect of the needs of people who have mental health challenges and indeed people with learning disabilities, we've often referred to this as the Cinderella services because they have been relatively neglected compared with, for example, people who have acute medical conditions that require the expertise of the specialists in our acute hospitals. Professor Chris Hamm has worked in strategy at the NHS for decades and is co-chair of the NHS Assembly. It's taken a lot of work to begin to recognise the importance of that neglect and to try and put it right. And we talk these days about parity of esteem for mental health services. And there has been progress in the last five, ten years to put mental health services on a more equal footing. But taking the longer term view, it's hard to justify the low priority that traditionally has been associated with those services. The fact we have, I say, over very many years, not recognised mental health as being on a par, for example, with conditions such as cancer and heart attacks and strokes. People in the mental health services haven't had such a loud and strong voice as those arguing for higher priority for the specialist and acute services. And sadly, that means that we're always playing catch up in wanting to make sure that the right amount of money and staff are going into those mental health services, because increasingly, We know that many of the causes of people seeking help and support in the NHS do relate to mental health at all stages of our lives. So this is something that matters to all of us. I think increasingly that is now recognised and things are being put to rights. So what is the biggest problem driving the crisis in the NHS? Camilla Cavendish says staffing is the most serious problem as the current strikes bear out. The biggest threat currently facing the NHS is actually no longer money, in my opinion. It is staff. We haven't got enough staff. For the last count, I think we had 93,000 vacancies. Brexit was a factor in that, I'm afraid. A lot of Eastern European staff who were very good have opted to go home. We have not been able to recruit sufficient numbers, either domestically or from the rest of the world. 
And within that staff figure, there's also a real challenge for people on the front line, which is you can make a lot more money being an agency nurse or a locum doctor than actually being on the payroll. And I have friends in the NHS who are doctors and nurses who are finding it really hard to manage sort of shifting cast of characters who understandably want to be able to earn more by working part-time on these kind of what they call in the NHS uh, nursing bank. But that isn't good for taxpayer and it's not good for the patients either. So is low morale, where doctors and nurses are exhausted and feel it will be impossible for them to ever do their job properly. I think the NHS has always had a bit of a morale problem. I mean, you can go back in time and people are always complaining about something. But actually, personally, I have never seen morale lower than it is now. I know people who are saying to me, I'm going to just actually stick to my normal working hours. Now, this is a group of people who in the past have consistently worked overtime, and that's the way this, the NHS has actually managed to survive. And if all of those people stop working overtime, we've got a problem. So why do we tolerate the NHS being in a state of permanent crisis? I asked John Appleby where this peculiarly British mindset comes from. One place to start is that, in a sense, we're we're in the system, as it were, and we're, our experience, we perhaps lack a bit of perspective. There used to be, not long ago, a Dutch a surgeon who was chief exec of University College Hospital in London. I was in a meeting and he was talking about winter pressures, and that's very common to us. That's, ve- that's a very familiar thing for us. And, we talk, and the newspapers, media full of it, somebody on a trolley, ambulance waiting, this, that and the other, in winter. And he said, and I did ask him about, well, what, does it happen in the Netherlands? And he said, well, yeah, of course, you know, we have pressures every winter, but the media isn't full of this stuff. We flex our sort of resource and we do this and we do that. And yes, the system is under a bit of pressure because we can't necessarily plan our health system. It's a bit like with the pandemic, you know, clearly the system was under pressure, but you can't plan a whole healthcare system on the premise that tomorrow there may be a global pandemic because you just have a lot of people sitting around doing nothing. Well, they wouldn't be doing nothing, but it's not very efficient. I mean, in lots of public opinion polls, you know, what do you love about Britain? The NHS, and then it's the monarchy, and then it's Marks and Spencers, and then it's whatever. You know, those are the things which come top of the poll. And so we can be very concerned about it when we feel things aren't going right. But frankly, we haven't spent nearly as much money on healthcare in this country, looking back over the decades, than compared to France or Germany or the Netherlands and so on. We may be catching up a bit over the last sort of 10, 20 years, but we're about average for EU countries. Is that what we want? You know, maybe if we're about average funding, we get sort of, you know, pretty average healthcare. So there is a history of sort of parsimony in the NHS and funding. Maybe we can learn more about the place the NHS holds in our minds from people who are outside the organisation but spend a lot of time thinking about it. People like casualty scriptwriter Ed Selak. I'm actually a very squeamish person, despite having a parent who had worked in it for a long time, and there's a lot about my shows I can't even watch that I have to turn away from, the blood and the gore especially. The BBC drama has been running for 36 years. I do not want Dr Masoom treating my son. He's failed him more than once already. Didn't exactly fail. Look at him! Even in the first ever episode, the shortages in the NHS were clear. Have you ever spent a night in casualty, Norman? You try telling a six-foot drunk with a Stanley knife you'll run out of swabs. I'm not telling him, I'm telling you. Stop behaving like the night shift is your private army. I'm serious, Ewart. Nobody's that special. 
you or your permanent night shift. What's it like to dramatise something that's so fundamental to our lives and often so traumatic? It is an odd thing to want to go into a hospital for entertainment. As you say, the, to go into them in reality is a very is often a very scary thing. It's often a very traumatic thing. But it does seem to... It just seems to work on so many levels dramatically that I can't really turn away from it, that I feel really energised when I get to write about it because you can just bring so many different facets of humanity and tell them through this lens that you can... You could talk about social issues, about the way you know, people's diets affect their health. You can talk about just the very basics of how people treat one another and the ways that perhaps someone's lack of concern or situational awareness causes an accident. You can address ageing, you can address loneliness even, you know, life events. It's an odd thing. Sometimes the shows are like sitting down and saying, like, here's all the ways your body might betray you in in the next decades. You know, one day you're going to wake up and, you know, like your ear feels a bit funny and I can't hear out of it, or I've suddenly lost all feeling in my leg, or yada yada. And you think, well, all of those just seem so scary, and there isn't really a. You don't wake up suddenly with the strength of ten men, or you can, you know, see two miles further than you ever used to. And you think all of that was terrifying, but sometimes I think being reminded of all those things is actually really bizarrely enriching and makes you then more appreciative of the way of things you have. I think it sounds like a dreadful cliche now. I'm embarrassed to say, hi, I'm a writer and I said something so trite, but yeah, there's something compelling there. There's human human fallibility and there's something quite quite universal and touching about it. Yes, but it's, it's, it's a strength through adversity thing as well, though. It's not just, it, it's not just the failings, it's the, it's the hope bit that I think is, is at the heart of what I want to do. Chris Ham suggests we have a love-hate relationship with the service. We love it when it's there for us, and the knowledge that we won't have to pay for care gives us a sense of security. But on the other hand, we hate it when we have to wait, when we get the wrong kind of response, when there are barriers in the way of us accessing the care and support we or our loved ones really need. And that's always been a feature of the NHS going back as far as 1948. I do think currently... We are in an acute phase of that chronic condition that you describe, of the NHS always struggling as a universal free-at-the-point-of-view service to meet everybody's needs and demands in a timely way to the right standard. And that's fundamentally because of lack of resources, money obviously, but particularly at the moment, the lack of enough doctors and nurses and therapists and the other staff who are the core of the NHS, and that's really the sad reflection of failures of workforce planning that go back to the origins of the NHS. I talked to palliative care consultant Rachel Clark, author of two books about working in the NHS. She agreed that staffing was the biggest of the NHS's problems. It's very, very simple. It's an absolute abject failure to invest in the NHS workforce. It doesn't matter how many empty beds you have in a hospital, how many empty seats in a waiting room and a GP surgery. If you don't have the staff, 
you can't treat the patients. And for the last 12 years, we have had tens of thousands of vacancies of frontline staff, doctors, nurses, paramedics, midwives, every conceivable group, and no proper long-term plan to address that whatsoever. And it becomes a vicious circle because that means the staff who are there become more and more burned out, ground down, overwhelmed, demoralized conditions of work become more horrible and they leave, they retire early, they go part-time and you end up sort of scouring the world for replacements. And it's it's absolutely astonishing that this has gone on for 12 years. So does it come down to bad planning, not realising that with an ageing population, we were always going to need more doctors? Partly, says Camilla Cavendish. It sounds technical, but there is a real problem around pensions and tax, which is leading to an awful lot of doctors retiring far too early. They just have to, the government just has to fix that. We could be doing a lot more to get some retired people back in. And this brings me on to another point, which is paperwork. The NHS is absolutely drowning in paperwork. It is becoming a less and less fulfilling job on the front line when you constantly have to fill out forms. You have to go on training courses, which people tell me are largely nonsense. And it seems to have become incredibly bureaucratic. Now, that's partly a product of it being a centralised system, I suppose. But I also think it's it's a cultural issue. And, and that is something that would really make a big difference. In COVID, when I was working as a temporary advisor to the Department of Health, I was talking to people on wards who felt really liberated by the fact that during the pandemic, a number of regulations and paperwork were just lifted. And it didn't make the slightest bit of difference to the care we gave to people. But it did mean that, frankly, if you were a nurse working in a hospital ward, you could get on with the job that you thought you were supposed to be doing and not spend quite so much time inputting data into a computer. And I really think that we need to bottle that and take it forward and stop the system sliding backwards again. On the other hand, Chris Ham was sceptical, to say the least, that another organisational shake-up is the answer. A weakness, something that we've got wrong, and this is something that successive governments have got wrong, is the persistent and erroneous belief that if we only reorganise the NHS one more time, we will end up with a set of arrangements that actually are fit for purpose. And a huge amount of time and effort, in my view, has been wasted on successive reorganisations and also relying far too much on regulation by the Care Quality Commission and others as a means of improving the quality of patient care when we know there are other and better ways of achieving that objective. Trying to regulate the NHS, in other words, has not been the panacea that recent governments thought it would be. Perhaps one of the most unexpected things about the NHS is how little many of us really know about it. Not many people realise that GPs are self-employed and run their own businesses. We think about the NHS as a cradle-to-grave service, but it wasn't part of its original remit to look after people with a terminal diagnosis. Rachel Clark told me how little people think about palliative care until they, or a family member, need it. A death in hospital doesn't have to be a horrible experience, and, and I now work in hospital palliative medicine, and my whole job is to ensure that for people dying in a hospital, we bring as much dignity and meaning and even beauty to that experience as we possibly can. We'll always try and ensure that patient is in a side room 
all their symptoms are beautifully controlled and that's usually quite easy to do. Patients, their families may bring in pictures, their favourite duvet, their bed linen, their children, pets. I love it if they would like to have a favourite whiskey or a glass of wine in the evening. You know, we'll do everything we can to make it beautiful and meaningful. If they want to go outside and they're too weak to get into a wheelchair, we will push the bed outside into the sunshine so they can feel it on their cheeks. So we try very, very hard to ensure that wherever someone dies, all of the meaning and 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 quality is there right until the end as much as possible in the way that the patient would like it's just hard in in a hospital setting because of all the understaffing we've just been talking about so again i dearly wish that end of life care was properly funded by the nhs and people are often very surprised to discover that it isn't two thirds of hospice care is not provided by the NHS. It's funded by the generosity of of charitable donations. But we wouldn't fund maternity care or paediatrics by, you know, jumble sales or people doing sponsored ab sales off buildings. That's a core part of the NHS. It's meant to be cradle to grave. And the grave part actually, sadly, is being severely neglected at the moment. Does the situation reflect a kind of wider failure to ask ourselves really tough questions about the NHS and to face up to really hard messages that we don't seem to want to listen to. I think that's very true. So first of all, you know, death is understandably a daunting subject. It has something of a taboo status for lots of people. And it's hard being a mortal creature who knows we're mortal. and, And one day, everything, everyone we love in the world, we are going to lose one way or another. That is a both inescapable truth and and something that's very hard for us to face. It's easier to pretend that isn't the case. And I think more generally, illness and infirmity of any kind, we know it could happen to us, but we choose to live our lives ignoring that or hoping that it won't for understandable reasons we'd worry ourselves to death if we constantly thought about the worst that could happen and that means when the bolt from the blue hits you or hits your family it's it's a devastating shock but i think it also means that as a society if we are lucky enough to be healthy we kind of close our eyes and ears to the worst that can happen for very understandable psychological reasons. And it's only when someone is unlucky enough to need absolutely first-class health care and instead they find themselves waiting 16 hours for an ambulance to get to their granny who's fallen down the stairs and broken her hip and is lying on the floor in agony. That's when they realise something terrible is going wrong with our society. This This should not be the case. We are a rich enough country to provide high quality health care for everybody. And in a way, right now, the system is failing in plain sight, but we're choosing not to see it. And I think that the government is, is colluding with that and driving that by pretending that everything is okay. You know, they might say, yes, we know there are long waiting lists. And I think although it's really hard to face up to all of that, it's a little bit like the climate emergency We have to, because if we don't, people are going through terrible suffering who needn't. And I think there is no escaping the fact that fundamentally a society, we get the health service we choose. 
we get the one that we're willing to pay for, the one we're willing to fight for. And I know, and public opinion polls show that the vast majority of the British public They do want a first-class health service. Every poll puts the NHS at the top of the things the British people are proud of. And yet we are all almost allowing this terrible situation. And I just hope that in the next election, the NHS is right there as one of the number one issues that is driving the government we choose. So here we are, not able to turn away from drama about the NHS, but unable to confront the reality of just how much it affects our lives. What would it take to get the government to confront the scale of the crisis in the NHS? It's really difficult when all you hear are statistics. I think everybody understandably has a tendency to glaze over when they hear about, you know, the waiting list is now 6.5 million people for operations. The waiting times in A&E or XYZ, that's a dry statistic. It's not a human story. But just to translate that into human terms. So, One of those people who maybe stays in the back of an ambulance for 12 hours on a hospital forecourt because there's literally no physical space for them to come into in an A&E department and then maybe dies in that ambulance or sometimes literally dies in the corridor outside the department. That's a human being. That is someone's mum, dad, brother, sister and the human indignity and and, and horror of that is difficult to imagine if it's not staring you in the face. I mean, I, I, I literally see this. We have patients dead on arrival who die outside the hospital, who die in the corridors in a, in a hospital toilet. There's no dignity. It, it's, it's horrific. And it's easy to turn a blind eye to that. We need to hear from staff telling us what it's truly like. We need to see it. I wish that NHS hospitals would open up their doors to TV cameras, obviously respecting privacy. I wish they would interview relatives and patients so the public could hear and see and experience what conditions are like, because there is absolutely no way in a relatively rich, you know, civilised society we would allow this, the public would allow it if they actually saw it. And it, and instead of that happening, I think the control of comms and the media in the NHS is sort of heavily censored by the Department of Health and Social Care. It's controlled from the top down. And we don't see this because the government doesn't like the public to see that because ultimately the failure rests with them. We love it and we fear it, and perhaps we just can't bear to see it fail. As Rachel Clark told me, we need to see more of what goes on in the NHS. Not in a drama series like Casualty, much as we devour those series, but the truth about what happens in hospitals and at GPs. The stories of people who can't reach those services because they couldn't get through on the phone, or the ambulance never came. We need to do that because the people most badly failed at the moment are the ones who can't talk to us about it. They're not here. We have a service that keeps extensive records, even if it can't share them when they're most needed. 
It's a service that monitors itself constantly, but when its targets aren't met, can't do much about it. We need to be honest about what the NHS is going to be able to do with the resources we give it, and stop assuming that when it needs more staff, we'll somehow be able to find them by recruiting them from abroad or hiring them on day rates. We all need to know and understand a lot more about the NHS, and I hope this episode has shed some light on how it got into the parlour state it's in now. In the next episode of Jam Tomorrow, I'll be looking at what kind of housing bombed-out Britons wanted at the end of the Second World War. The wonder of the prefab was, first of all, the indoor bathroom and toilet, and a kitchen with absolutely every mod con. There was a refrigerator, there was an electric stove, there was a fold-down table, which I and all the kids that I knew thought was magical, a larder, hot and cold running water. We thought it was perfection. How home ownership became the ultimate guarantee of security and prosperity in the UK, and why that dream is now out of reach for so many people. I'm Ros Taylor, and that was Jam Tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jay Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, with artwork by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI digital website. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.